Welcome to the Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Here's Dr. Jana, an NYU professor of human sexuality, and Joe, a guy who's a fan of sex. Dr. Jana, how you doing? Hi, Joe. Welcome to episode 56 of the Science Sex Podcast. I'm so excited about this episode. It's very different from our usual episodes. Yeah, tell me about it because you, you've been very mysterious about this whole episode Oh, here. you're lying. <laughs> you're lying. This is all your idea. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> this is something that I caught on your Instagram because your Instagram is fascinating. Sometimes it's a little too much. <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> but what's too much on it uh sometimes you know an how, example you know when people do an insta story you'll see like those lines at, at the top of it the width of it depends oh, yeah, how long the story is too many stories So sometimes mm-hmm. i'll look at yours and there's like 600 little tick marks no there are no 600 <laughs> you know some of these questions that happens when i do an ask me anything or i yeah. answer people's questions on a given topic and some of these questions are not so quick to answer you know you yeah. need you need more than 15 damn seconds no, to answer know, a question and there's so many questions people have so the last time i noticed it when they had the 600 little slashes was you, you you were taking questions about squirting squirting yes it is everyone's favorite i mean it re- literally feels like it's everyone's favorite topic no matter where i'm giving a talk on whatever it is mm-hmm. somebody asks a question about squirting and it's funny too because a, a lot of your questions obviously revolve around uh, open relationships and non-monogamy mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. all that stuff but this is sort of one of the things that's a little bit out of your lane, as they say. But do you know enough of it to do an entire episode of The Science of Sex? Everything is in my lane. Oh, Anything right. sex-related <laughs> is in my lane. All right. But you do know <laughs> enough, though, to uh, carry an entire episode here? Yes and no. Okay. A few years ago, I combed through all of the research, all of the academic research that has been published on the topic of squirting that I could find, and read it all. And this was for a workshop that we were putting together with my friend, colleague, amazing sex educator, Kenneth Play. And we kind of wanted to find out what do we know about squirting, about this thing that everybody seems to want to know about. And as part of that, I kind of got all the science that I could. And we included this in this online course on squirting that we just created. And so I have the knowledge. Okay. As far as science is concerned. That's my follow-up question. So we've done many episodes. We've done pedophilia. We've (laughs) done testosterone. We've done casual sex. But we haven't done a squirting one because is there anyone doing (laughs) squirting research? There is some, but not a lot. It's kind of difficult to do a lot of the squirting research. Asking people survey questions, that isn't that difficult to do. And I'm really surprised that there are no more of those kinds of surveys, just like asking a big group of people about their experiences. Have you squirted? You know, how was it? Whatever. But even that, we just don't have a lot. And then some of the other questions that people have around squirting, like, what is it? Where does it come (laughs) from? Can all women squirt? And so on. That is a little more difficult to do because it requires getting squirters into the lab and trying to get vagina owners into the lab potentially and getting them to squirt or trying to get them to squirt and then somehow capturing that liquid that comes out and then you know being able to do the chemical analysis on it and as you can imagine that's not so easy so the short answer is no (laughs) well there there has been some there's some despite these okay obstacles when it comes to squirting research there has been some research on it it's just not a lot many of those kinds of studies in particular have one 
subject oh, in it or five or seven okay. because logistics are difficult in that in that regard. And so I don't have so much personal experience with it, and uh, but I do know someone who does. Who's and, that? Uh, <laughs> Is that the guy that's sitting here in the studio with us? <laughs> that's the guy sitting here in the studio with us. Kenneth Play. And I that's can, me. At Joe's suggestion, uh, we decided to answer some of these squirting questions with a mix of whatever we know from science through Dr. Jana okay. and whatever we don't really know from science, but we know through someone who has a lot of experience with it, Kenneth Play. Hopefully, give people a sense of what this phenomenon is. All right, so this is the point of the show where Dr. Jana can read a, like a two-minute introduction for the <laughs> researcher or the scientist we're talking to. But since, you, since you're here, why don't you tell everyone about yourself? Like, what makes you this... I don't want to say too, like, outwardly, but, you know, a squirting expert. So my name is Kenneth Play, and I'm probably the world's most unlikely sex educator because <laughs> I grew up kind of extremely sexually insecure, never thought I could have the sex life I want. And then I kind of conquered my fitness life and learned how to, like, hack my body and, and, and became a really good personal trainer and start managing a bunch of personal training programs. And he got really, really, really hot got in really the process. Hot. But it did not change my sex life much because the internal insecurity is still there. So I was like, how do I kind of change my life or hack my sex life? So I decided to kind of apply the same thing I have. So I tiger mom myself into an overachiever in sex. You tiger so, mommed yourself. <laughs> to be an overachiever in sex. So I read everything and I did all those things and I realized reading and, and trying things is not the most effective. So I always have this dream of going to sex parties. So I finally got myself into a sex party and it literally changed my life because you know, in the fitness industry, there's a lot of evidence-based learning. You watch someone do something and you see it. And in porn, it's sort of, you know, still entertainment. So it's like watching the Fast and the Furious, learning how to drive. Right. So getting into sex party, I could see the guy, for example, squirting. There's always like one or two guys at the party that is like half the trick. And then <laughs> people line up. And then I see like, how do you do this? So I start to do my own research. Can you imagine that, Joe? I get it. So it's like a buffet and then there's like maybe like the chicken parmesan and everyone wants that chicken parmesan <laughs> so they line up for that. So the squirt guy is that chicken parm. It's that guy, <laughs> okay. yeah. And um, then I, I suppose, or the guy making the chicken parm. Yeah, yeah for okay. everybody. Mm -hmm. It's also, it is in some way a party trick because it's really loud, it's very visual, so it attracts attention, right? Sure. So then I was just curious on what, you know, what, you got what this phenomenon is. <laughs> I got a line. And I was the guy afterward and I would ask the woman how it felt and ask the guy, like, how do you know? And all those, like, very detailed questions because I'm an educator first, you know, in the fitness industry. So I start to deconstruct the process of how do you do it and in what condition does it work all the time and, and what state they need to be in. So I start mastering this technique. And Kenneth then, is so geeky about how these things work in sex. I've never met anybody who's been so detailed in deconstructing exactly what happens. Well, it makes sense yeah. from his fitness background. Right, exactly. So he knows all about the moves and mm -hmm. everything and the proper procedures you're supposed to do. So mm -hmm. you, did you like sort of reverse engineer it? You <laughs> you kind of went with the end point and then went backwards, right? Exactly. And then I gotten so good at it that people start asking me. So I was that guy at the party. So you were the chicken parm guy. <laughs> okay. I was the chicken parm guy. And then one of uh, a sex party organizer asked me, hey, I know I'm noticing you've been really like learning about how to give women pleasure would you like to teach a workshop at a sex party i never thought i was going to teach being you know the insecure person yeah. i was still really shy about this stuff but i go like i would love to skillshare and just kind of teach people what i learned not like i'm their 
the expert in right. it. And that class kind of changed my life because it gave me this taste of, oh, people didn't realize that you could apply a growth mindset to sex. Like people believe either you're fixed, like you're born this way, right. or if you don't have this body type or this penis or whatever it is, your sex life is projected that way. And then I learned that you could kind of create whatever sex life you want if you're willing to put in the effort. So like a Chinese mom would tell you, not that you're smart or stupid, you didn't work hard enough or you didn't work smart enough. So I start showing people how to learn about sex that I didn't know how to learn. You know, it's not really easy to learn. But deconstructing the learning process, the skill acquisition of it. I don't know if we've talked much about fixed versus growth mindsets. No. But this is something that is a big thing in psychology in general, not in sexuality, which is why we probably haven't brought it in much. And Kenneth learned it from me as a, as a concept. But we know from a lot of research on a lot of different areas of human existence that people have different beliefs around themselves. You can either think this is it, that I have what I have. Initially, this we, we kind of started doing research and mindsets from the perspective of intelligence and how some people think, well, this is the intelligence that I have, whatever, you know, 105 is my that's IQ it, my, and yep. that's it. There's not much more I can do about it. And if you have that mindset, you're not going to put in a lot of effort. Whereas to, to get better, you're just going to yeah. accept that this you is what plateaued. you have. That's yeah, it. Yep. exactly. Whereas if you have a growth mindset, you are in this mindset that you can always do better. If you work smart, harder and smarter and longer and try different, different ways of getting at the solution and all that, you're going to get better. And a lot of research shows that that's absolutely the case, that people who have growth mindsets accomplish so much more than the people who have fixed mindsets, even at the exact same level of skill or exact same level of ability, like IQ or something. And we've since started to, to apply the mindset idea to other areas like relationships and what's successful in relationships and other uh, aspects. And I think it absolutely applies to sexuality as well. And I love that kind of Kenneth took that and incorporated that into his teaching. So tell us about that first workshop that you did mm -hmm. going into it. Obviously, you were probably nervous. You said you were kind of a shy guy. How did that whole experience go for you that led you to here? When I start teaching, I kind of drop into my flow state on the teaching part. And what was so fascinating or deeply kind of moved me is that I realized that I could transfer the skill to someone else. Like I know how to do that in the fitness industry. Mm -hmm. Like I could teach someone a very complex Olympic lift movement or whatever it is. I never did that in sex. When I realized they could succeed really quickly too. It's not like you have to teach this thing that takes 12 weeks to learn something, you know, always taught in this play-by-play -play format, right? So when I could teach someone that they could get the experience or the success right then and there, it really changed their perspective because they had this, you know, reference point of learning something. Also, it's like creating the zone, uh, this learning zone when people are you know, it's just challenging enough that they stay engaged in the game and not so hard they shut down. So so with exercise science, you could talk about like exercise progression. So you start, if you can't do a push-up, you start on the wall, then you get on your knees and then you do a regular push-up. So I could deconstruct those little steps. So they get the dopamine hit every time they win something. Wow. So I could keep the them reward. engaged. Yeah. yeah, and the reward. And this is, it was really life-changing to see how I could use everything I learned in the fitness industry in skill acquisition and translate it to you know, sex. How long ago was this workshop? Five, six years ago. Five, six now. Years okay. Ago. Yeah. So you're like Obi Wan Kenobi right now. You're not. <laughs> no. You're not Luke Skywalker. You are, you're you're deep into it at this point. And so since then, what is your best estimate for the number of vagina owners mm. who you have had an opportunity to try to get them to squirt? More than five hundred, I would say. More than five hundred. More than five hundred. Wow. That's a lot of humans. 
<laughs> Kenneth 500 here. <laughs> 500. <laughs> yeah, that's impressive. Do you think that qualifies him? Yeah, no, you, you, you're <laughs> correct, yes. So now that we know that Kenneth knows what he's talking about, can you explain to me what is squirting? Can we get to that? Okay, I guess that is the first question that yeah. everybody asks. And the big question within that question is, is it pee? Okay. I wish there were, I wish there were a quick and easy answer to this. There isn't, but I'm going to try to make it as short and concise as possible. Okay. First of all, we're still fighting over what that is and where it comes from. In the scientific world, there's still some disagreement around that. Really? We just, I At mean, this point? I know, I know. We haven't been studying the female you know, sexual anatomy and, and physiology for very long, for a very long time. And we're just starting to do that as, and as we talked about just, just a few minutes ago, it's not so easy to do some of this research. But still, we've cured cancer and like cured paralysis. We have not but, cured cancer. Well, we've, but, well, we've cured some cancers okay. and we've cured some paralysis, and but <laughs> okay. we can't figure out what squirting is. I'm very confused. I know. I know, right? I know. <laughs> It's so backwards, so wrong, but it's the state of affairs at the moment. Okay. That said, there does seem to be relative scientific consensus at the moment about what I'm about to say, and that is that there, there are most likely two types of ejaculate. So first of all, squirting or female ejaculation, as it's often called, is just the physical expulsion of liquid from the urogenital tract, right? Okay. It's doing something to those organs down there, and that's something then getting liquid to come out. Right? And what that liquid is and where it comes from it seems like there are two different types of liquid that come out of very different areas. One of them is white milky substance that is not a lot in quantity. It's actually more like a trickle. Okay. And it's, you know, white and milky and it has high levels of prostate specific chemicals in it, which indicates that it comes from the female equivalent of the prostate gland. Okay. It's called the Skeen's glands in, in women. And we think that they're probably a vestige of the fact that the prostate has an important you know, reproductive and health uh, function in men. And so, and it doesn't do much for, for women, women. Or yeah. if it does, we're still not aware of what that function would be. Uh, we don't need, physiologically speaking, we don't seem to need any, any of those chemicals that the Skeen's glands are producing. But it's very likely a vestige of the fact that men have it. And as I'm sure we've mentioned on the show before, male and female anatomy parts are all made of the same tissue. They all start out the same. And what exactly develops into what depends on which hormones you, you, uh, you present at, mm -hmm. in, in utero. Uh, but otherwise, everything that female bodies have, male bodies have just in a organized slightly differently. So it's not surprising that we would have similar, similar tissues and similar organs. That said, it's very likely that not all women have them. So there have been a couple of dissection studies where they've dis dissected you know, deceased uh, women and yeah, tried not living to, ones. Yeah, yeah, definitely not okay. dissecting living ones. Good call. And <laughs> generally ethical <laughs> yeah. Uh, practice, yeah. And they've been looking for the skin's glands and they only find them in uh, maybe 50, 60%. Wow, okay. Yeah, so it's possible that some women don't have them at all. Again, that shows that it's probably not a, a an important physiologically, reproductively important um, 
So those women that so they mm-hmm. can't produce the white. So they would not be able to produce the white milky substance, exactly. And the ones that do have them, just to make things more complicated, because this isn't already complicated (laughs) enough, the women who do have them, it seems like they can come in lots of different shapes and sizes and variations. So in some women, the skin's glands are more like a singular gland. In other, it's kind of like a diffuse grouping of cells. They're all in the urethra, in the urethral wall. They live in the urethral wall, okay. and so they're tiny, but uh, some of them have their own little ducts that drain outside the, the body. So they have little openings that are on either side of the vaginal opening, and so they have their own little duct that leads out. So you might get, in those cases, the white milky substance would just come out directly out of the body right next to the urethra, right? right? Where, the, where the pee comes out, that hole, there'll be two tiny, tiny little holes that you might be able to see, and the white milky substance would come out of there. In other women, it seems like there are no direct ducts leading outside the body. Instead, the skin's glands uh, will drain into the urethra because they live in the, I mean, they exist in the urethral wall. Okay. In that case, if the skin's glands are dumping their milky white substance into the urethra, then it would come out of the urethra and often mixed with the other squirt that I'm about to talk about. All right. (laughs) So... Complicated, yes. right? We definitely know that that exists, that white milky substance exists. It has these prostate-specific substances. And clearly, the skin's glands or, or periurethral glands are sometimes called because they're right around the urethra or inside the urethral walls, which are the female equivalent of the prostate. And that doesn't contain any amount of urine, especially if it just, th- that, that liquid itself, the white milky substance, doesn't contain any traces of urine, any of the urine-specific urea or uric acid or, or uh, creatinine. Or PP, something. yep. All that. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't have that, especially if it comes out of its own separate ducts. Now, of course, if it comes out of the urethra, then it might have some of that because the urethra would, would contain some traces of, of urine, even if nothing else comes out. Right. But in and of itself, that doesn't have any urine-specific substances. However, that's not the typical squirt that most people think of when they think of squirting. The squirting that you see in porn, the gushing squirt, yeah. you know, buckets and buckets of, of liquid coming out. It's like a sprinkler, out. yeah. <laughs> this, yeah. Large Gatorade bottles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, large Gatorade bottles full of liquid. There is no way that that comes from the periurethral or the skin's glands. Okay, so where does that they're one come ti- from? Because they're tiny. Okay. Right? They, they do, not, do not have the capacity to hold that much liquid. So where that comes from is the bladder. It, it passes through the bladder. Hmm. It has to pass through the bladder. There is no other anatomical structure in the female body that can hold that much water or can have that much water, water or liquid come through. And partially we, certain these days that the, the bladder has to be involved because there was a relatively recent study a few years ago that got a lot of media attention, which was probably the most high-tech squirting study done thus far. It was done in France, and they only had seven or eight people like, like these yeah. studies usually do. But what they did do, and none of the other studies of, of squirting have done, is have the women who were coming into the lab, these were all squirters, uh, squirters who could, who could easily make themselves squirt, and knew how to do that. And they got them into the lab and they had them do ultrasound before anything happened, do an ultrasound as, you know, actually they drank water, you know, they kind of got ready to pee. So they did an ultrasound before peeing. Then they did an ultrasound after they peed. 
Then they started stimulating themselves sexually. Then they did another ultrasound right before they were about to squirt. Then they did another another ultrasound after they squirted. Okay. And what they saw is that the bladder was, as you would expect, full right before they peed. Then once they peed, the bladders empty. were empty, yep. as you would expect. And then in the time, which was you know, 10 minutes, 20, 30 minutes, depending on how long it took the women to sexually stimulate to the point of squirting, during those 10 to 30, 40 minutes, their bladders got full again. And then after they squirted, their bladders were empty again. And these were all of the, the gushing squirt yeah, sort yeah. of type squirters. So th- that really indicates that it this is liquid that comes, at least passes through the bladder. Now, to what extent is it pee is yet another big question. When you do these chemical composition studies, some of that gushing squirt actually, in some of the cases, it doesn't seem that much different from urine. In other cases, it looks like there are only tiny little traces of urine. Okay. And so we think that depending on how much hydration the squirter in, in case has done prior to that, when she peed last and how, how much time passed in between the squirting and the previous peeing, it may have, the squirt that comes out may have more or less concentration of urine. But even if there's any there, it's, it's very minute. Right. You know, in some cases, it's very minute. In some cases, it might be more substantial. And in some cases, the the, uh, liquid that comes out is just completely clear and odorless. It doesn't really look like urine. When you look at it, it's clear. It's not yellow. And in other cases, it's yellowish. So it really depends. There's quite a bit of variability, it seems. And the different studies find different, different results. There's quite a bit of variability in how much urine concentration is in that squirt. Okay, so like you said, it's not pee, but there are traces of pee in the squirt, depending on on the person. It almost always has traces of urine, and in some cases it might even have, you know, be closer to urine than than just traces of urine. Okay, all right. Yeah. So now we know what, squirt, <laughs> what <laughs> the squirting is. In my experience, it, it depends on the person. Are they well hydrated? Did they eat dinner? Are they like dehydrated? Like just say if they didn't, they're dehydrated, just when they pee is going to come out like apple juice. So it depends on the person's right. body condition at that particular moment. But usually I have them, you know, if they want to have that experience, if they stay hydrated and they empty their bladder before they go in, at least I know that's not leftover pee from the pee that they didn't expel right. before the sexual experience. So their new liquid that is, I guess, um, gathering at the bladder will become the one that is when it's caused by sexual stimulation during that time. But I guess your bladder would still fill up if you just had to pee. Eventually. While yeah. you, eventually. Because right. yeah. right. it's a timeline thing. Right, exactly. But I do believe that it builds up quicker when it's stimulated. That's what I, in, in my experience, it, just say if you just empty your bladder, but you have enough water inside your body to produce more liquid. Mm-hmm. Doing sexual stimulation, it just builds up much faster than I would say. Well, it yeah. seems that way. I mean, certainly the study is suggesting that because we usually don't need to pee. Our bladders don't minutes. fill up yeah, in yeah. 10 minutes or yeah. 20 minutes after you just peed. So th- it does seem like there is water that kind of gets gets pulled into the bladder during sexual activity. And there's a lot of stuff that happens during sexual activity. There's blood flow in the genital area. Maybe that is in some way contributing to this. And so, but if that bladder fills up, if that liquid gets in the bladder really quickly, maybe doesn't have enough time to process and uh, the the waste 
product doesn't have enough time to really accumulate. Right. It just kind of passes through the kidneys and gets into the bladder real quick without being able to have all the waste product that urine normally would. Mm-hmm. This is somewhat speculative at this yeah. point, but this would be my best bet. Yeah, mm-hmm. that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. 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 Now, the other question is, how much do we really care? You know, like the, the big question around, is it pee, is it pee, is does it really matter? Right. <laughs> right. Some people, for some people, it, I guess it does matter that they would like squirting, whether the, their own or their partner's squirting. They would enjoy that if they knew that it wasn't pee, but they wouldn't enjoy it if it was or it had relatively high concentrations or somewhat high concentrations of urine. But I think on the other hand, many of us would benefit from having a little more relaxed take on that. Yeah. Like, you know what? I guess it depends if you're a germaphobe, right? If you're a germaphobe, you may take it that way where you're like, Ugh. But it's not like it's going to cost you anything if it gets on your body or gets in your ca- like any cavity or in your mouth. Yeah, it's not toxic. You're yeah. not going to get sick. There's actually a myth that uh, urine is sterile and it's not sterile. There are bacteria to some extent in it, but the quantities, the concentrations of the, the, those bacteria are pretty low. You're, th- there's a very low, 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 low probability that you are going to get harmed in some way, that you're going to get sick in some way from having you know, that squirt touching your body or even getting into your mouth. Yeah. You know, there are people who play with urine, do water sports and all that, and will drink urine and nothing happens to them, and it's urine urine right? right not not this diluted best case scenario diluted uh, urine and so i think you know if you're a squirter and if that's pleasurable to you who the fuck cares you put it in a male body perspective if you think semen is so gross and every time you have an orgasm you have that relationship with semen coming out mm-hmm. you're gonna have a pretty difficult sex life <laughs> yeah so if this is a bodily function so if whatever value internalized would dictate how you're going to feel. So if it's, if that value doesn't really serve you and it, it messes you up every time, then you're going to have a very difficult time all the time. So it's more like it's worth examining those beliefs. And, yeah. and that's all we talk about all the time. Okay, so we've identified what it is. <laughs> we've done it in, <laughs> in scientific terms and, and as, as much as we know, like you said, as yeah. much as the research yeah. know. So I guess now the key question is why? Why do we squirt? What, what makes what makes you this squirting expert, Ken? What, what is it that makes people squirt? I look at it more like a function, you know? So it could be very pleasurable. It might not be for some people. And I think this is one of the important messages for the listener to hear is that there's such a diversity when it comes to this stuff. So not everybody needs to squirt or enjoy it. But I do think that, and in, in, in tell it in more of a story format. So I have a lot of people cry after the first time they squirt. And why do they cry? And then I, I was very deeply curious about this question. So usually when a woman is having intercourse or some type of the G-spot being stimulated, if they are just say in the 10, 20 minutes in time frame and they start feeling that sensation, it feels like kind of you have to pee a little bit. Maybe I imagine your fluid start building up in your bladder. But if it's the first, you know, in the early years when you start having sex, you go like, I don't want to pee on my partner. It feels weird to have this sensation. Yeah. So what usually happens is they learn to clinch down, like they're stopping the flow of urine. And then that act of squeezing makes sex less enjoyable most of the time from their point of view. Yeah, and you also get all self-conscious and that takes you away from the moment right. of you know, you're trying to prevent something from happening in your body. And, and yeah. you're no longer tuning into the pleasure right. you know, in your body and you're subscribing totally to the wrong channel. So 
once they realize that sensation is normal, that they feel like it kind of feels like that, but they don't interpret as I go to pee on my partner, but yeah. rather this is a good sign because it's when your body is functioning yeah. in a way that produces pleasure. And the other part is the hypervigilant part, right? Because if you at that state, you're not going to relax enough for pleasure to to happen in your body. So when you tell some a woman to like actually relax and and reinterpret that sensation and they actually let go and then let their body have a function, right? So they it's like a reflex. And sometimes it accompanies orgasm, sometimes it doesn't. But what it does is that they allow their body to do what it wants to do. And that is quite emotional because that mm-hmm. whole letting go, surrendering to your experience is what gives people in your body sexual experiences. So turning that off into like trusting and surrender to your own body, it quite comes out quite emotional it's most powerful. of the time. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it makes perfect sense though, because the way uh, Jean described it is coming from the bladder. So you can imagine your whole life you've you've clinched, you've used to clinch. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I gotta hold it. Oh, I can't. Get, mm-hmm. Where's the bathroom? I gotta, mm-hmm. I gotta get a break. So psychologically, we're all kind of programmed to clench. So mm-hmm. how do you get people to break through that? And indeed, when people do experiment with water sports and they are trying to sort of pee on a partner, it's really hard to do. Yeah. Most people, when they first try to do that. They struggle. You know, they they might be sitting in whatever that bathroom or bathtub or whatever for like thirty minutes trying to pee on someone. <laughs> as soon as they move to the toilet, Boom. no problem. Yeah, immediately you go back to the person. No way, because we're just so programmed not to do that. So, as a sexual <laughs> life hacker, how do you get people to get past that point? So I deconstructed, I broke it down. So what actually happened? So first thing is, I know psychologically they might feel they might interpret that sensation as the thing. You know that I should squeeze, so I produce that sensation. I go like, "Do you exp- feel that?" And then I go like, "You're clenching your muscles." So I have them squeeze my fingers, like stopping yourself from peeing. And they notice. I go like, "When you squeeze and I do this, it doesn't feel very good." Yes, they go yes. And now I want you to relax your vagina completely, neutral. And I do it again. It feels kind of good, but better. And then I have them bear down. Imagine you're trying to push a tampon out or push my finger out or trying to pee a little faster. And I know what that feels like in my fingers when they're contracting their PC muscle the way I want it to be. So I coach them until I know that they know how to do that. And then when I give them the same sensation, they will go like, oh, it feels good when I do this action. So there's a positive feedback Mm. loop that starts to happen. Once I get them to in that state, as long as they are really fully aroused and turned on by the situation and I'm coaching correctly. So I do the coaching, kind of the calibrating when it's like not super sexy sometimes. So I kind of do that quickly until I nail it and then I go back to sexy. And when they feel that sensation, I just tell them to push and then they push and then kind of magic Magic happens. He's like a personal trainer for a vagina. Yeah. <laughs> Although, John, I need to, because he jumped to it really fast. So your clients, you have your finger inserted in them while you're doing this? Yes, I do a lot of Because you jumped right into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, client lovers, it doesn't matter. You know, like, women at sex parties. Yeah. Okay. Because <laughs> right, he has lots of different people coming to him okay. from different areas uh, saying, I've never being able to squirt, can you make me squirt? That's the involuntary versus voluntary. So I think the best combo is that is voluntary on both sides. So the one who who's trying to give the stimulation know what they're doing, and also the person who owns the vagina know how those PC muscles work. You could kind of manually override it too if you give like a if the velocity or the intensity is high enough in a certain position, it kind of just override you regardless if you are consciously trying. willing or trying. 
But that's not the most pleasurable because when they're like not dancing with you,、mm. then it's a little bit more awkward. I think the best version that I have learned is when we get both partner to know what they're trying to accomplish and also to be able at the right state to get the best out of the experience. Right, because often people think, oh, if somebody's squirting, that means it's an orgasm. That means that vagina owner ha- is having an orgasm in that moment, and that is not true. That is simply not true. Sometimes it's an orgasm, but an orgasm is the subjective experience that you're having that is overwhelming and and all that, and that can be accompanied with the squirting or or might not. So, you're confused. No, no, because I'm trying to figure out. So, the, but does the squirting give an orgasmic feeling? Well, it can, but it doesn't have it doesn't to. Doesn't have to.、Okay. As he was saying, when it's in, especially when it's involuntary, when it just sort of happens, like maybe some, you know, your partner kind of hit the right spot right. and stuff just came out, but doesn't mean that you were at the point of an orgasm. Got it. Maybe you were slowly getting there. You were getting more and more aroused, but then it, the the squirting piece is literally just a physical expulsion of liquid. That's why I kind of gave that、yeah. de- definition at the beginning. Whether it's happening at the moment of an orgasm or not, that depends. And you can have women who do learn how to control their squirting.、Okay. They, as as Kenneth was saying, you can dance with it. You can kind of build it up to the point where the two happen at the same time. Oh, so you could kind of time it until you at the point of. You know, near orgasm. You know, when the bell ring and that is、mm-hmm. becomes like you cannot hold it back part, and then you do the technique. So you could kind of have an orgasm while you're squirting. Also, just the reflex is sort of like the doctor hitting you with a tiny hammer on your knee, and then、right. just pop. That's the involuntary part. So if someone know how to do the the little hammer、yeah. thing, then、yeah. in- internally, then it causes a reflex. But, yeah, but let's say they do it right at the beginning. Right, you just barely got sexually stimulated. You barely got in there. You're still like 20 minutes away from an orgasm, but this person just knows exactly where to hit. The stuff will come out, and you're like, "Uh, that doesn't even feel very good." Some women are unaware that is actually happening, so it could be a reflex. They don't even know. They just look down and go like, "Oh, why am I all wet?" So, <laughs> right, right. But to hack it is to make it pleasurable, something that you could get into, that you eroticize, that really arouses you. Then it's fun. And actually, this is one of those things that we know very, very little about, and that is how often are these squirting experiences pleasurable? How pleasurable are they? How often are they an orgasm? We have almost zero evidence from the academic literature on it. We kind of have this this anecdotal experience from Kenneth's experiences and the other the other people who are squirters or who have. Hundreds of,、uh, <laughs> of of squirting partners、uh, under their belt, if if you will. So one thing that Kenneth and I got together and decided to do is create a survey that is the most comprehensive survey that is going to ask all the questions that you can ask, minus the chemical composition of what the squirt is, but all these things that you can ask people in an online survey. We、uh, put it together and we want to make it the biggest. And greatest, most comprehensive survey on squirting ever created, so we can find out about these things. And that's up and running. And we encourage all listeners to go and take it. You can find it at squirtingsurvey.com. 
course. Of course. <laughs> we'll have a link in the episode description, obviously, and on our websites, but squirtingsurvey.com. And you can take it whether you have genitals that can squirt or not. You can take it whether you've ever squirted or not. Anybody can take it. We, we want to know so many different things about squirting. So please go and take it. And this is one of the questions that we have. And because science doesn't give us enough information, and it's really hard from what I know to get to the ethics board on how to do this stuff. But because I, you know, I run a lot of sex parties in creating those those environment we were thinking about creating a play lab where i asked 50 non-squirted never squirted in their life to come into a event and i would train nine other person on yeah. the technique on how to do it reliably and we kind of have a protocol on how we do it and, and and set it up correctly and then try those things and have them do a pre and after survey so we could get some not the largest but largest right 50 people well, i don't would, know that would be so that would be answering the question of can all women squirt? Right. Because that is one question that comes up again and again and again. And so we would love to know the answer. And we really don't know the answer because science certainly hasn't provided a great answer. There is one study. I love that they managed to do this study, by the way. I'm, I'm, I'm quite excited that they've managed to get it through their ethics board committee. This happened in Europe, of course. I was going to say <laughs> Canada, Europe. Which, yeah. Europe, yeah. I think Czech Republic or Poland or something like that, where they had something like 20-ish women come into the lab. They had never squirted before, and they were recruited through something else. It wasn't a, like, a squirting study. They were they came into the clinic for some, some other checkup or something, and they said, do you want to be in the study where we try to get you to squirt? They found 20 or 30 women to say yes. And Shocking. Yeah. <laughs> and then the researchers themselves try to get these women to squirt. Hmm. <laughs> now, were these researchers like Kenneth Play level? Well, clearly not <laughs> because their success rate was only about 30%. Oh. Even after, I believe there were three or four one-hour sessions on different days that these women... Oh, women must have been exhausted. I know. <laughs> Not on the same day, but on different yeah. days where they went in and tried to have the researchers get them to squirt. Only about 30% of them succeeded in that. And that's not a very high success rate in terms of uh, can all women squirt. But that is literally the only study ever conducted that tries to answer this particular question. All right. So you mentioned the study with 20 women. You mm -hmm. guys want to get like 50 women. That's that's, a, that's mm -hmm. a, at least 50. At least 50. <laughs> so can all women squirt? <laughs> I understand it didn't work well in Europe, but you know, you're hoping to do so better because here. Because the only the, the only source of evidence that we have, you know, out there available is the study and yeah. they had about 30% success rate, but I'm always curious about the the men like Kenneth who are the the chicken parm guys at yeah. sex parties <laughs> and what their success rate is. So Kenneth, you said you've had your hands or, or toys on trying to get about 500 different women, if not more, to get them to squirt. How many of them have you managed to get to squirt? I remember two or three that did not happen. And I don't know. What? If wait, hold on, hold on. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Two out of three out of 500? Yeah. And I remember the one that doesn't work because I get obsessive about why it didn't work. <laughs> then I asked Jana about a bunch of questions <laughs> afterward. Like, <laughs> that's a very yeah. good success rate. I'm not very good at math, Dr. Jana, but that's. But even you can tell it's a really high success I have, rate. I have done live workshop with a model that I never met in my life. Right, and I have to teach in front of an audience, and I really shouldn't bomb. But I tell them, you know, like I only teach authentically, so whatever happened happens. But this is a good case study, as you can see. I never met this person, and and I want to bring up a point about how the study is conducted. So, growing now, up, why do you think 
that that didn't work. <laughs> okay, so this might be a, a, a philosophy thing too. So growing up in Hong Kong, you kind of have this East and West, you know, meet kind of mm-hmm. culture. So I think the West is amazing about explaining something. So science is amazing explaining something, but Eastern philosophy is all about how to experience something. So they are two different things. So if you're trying to measure some explosion of fluid in a lab, and then you got a guy in a lab coat trying to finger you, <laughs> or whatever they did, yeah. it's not exactly sexy. So they didn't engineer the experiential part. So they, are they fully mm-hmm. aroused? Are they turn on? Is the situation created an environment where they you allow the sexual function? Because it doesn't. There's a lot more check boxes. It's not just finger in vagina or whatever the case may be. Are they fully aroused? Turn on? Are they clitoris fully engorged right. with blood? Is this experience turning them on? Do they have a psychological narrative that makes this a turn on? Can so, they relax? As can we were they talking relax? about earlier and really let go. And really let go. So I want to make sure all those other elements are in place because there's so much missing in sexuality. It's not like oh I need to you know jackhammer her. It's not the jackhammering. It could have you know it could be very pleasurable for for some people, but it's all the other detail that the is context. missing. Yeah, the context. So. I think that's why we want to study in a way that I wanted to teach all the people who are doing it to create their arousal environment, not just like do this technique because it's not just technical. Right. So we are going to do this play lab. I'm going to be the the research consultant yeah. on that, and Ken is going to be the hands on, obviously teacher of the other guys. I have a feeling it's not going to take place in some sort of very sterile lab. No, no. it's not going to take place <laughs> in the lab. It's going to happen probably at our, our, our hacienda. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah, uh, we should probably mention that the hacienda villa where I did a lot of my talks and uh, a lot of the events, educational events around sexuality, were done at the hacienda villa, which is where Kenneth lives. And he's a co-founder of the Sex Positive Intentional Community that sometimes will host events where you can get a bunch of people to squirt. <laughs> <laughs> we have so, like education events, sex party to to fighting for sex workers' right that you help mm-hmm. put together. So it's very diverse in how to you know use the space, but we we help build community. And I think you know a lot of the the sexual experience when you read it in a blog or listen to a podcast is a concept. When you get to experience it, or at least listen to other people live, it creates sort of this embodied experience. So we kind of want to merge the two. Yeah. So we'll have a hopefully we'll have a better answer to the question of can women squirt, even though it's not an official study and I won't be able to publish it in an academic the, journal. But the press will love it. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> they don't so care. we can spread the word faster. <laughs> yeah. You know. That's true. Yeah. That's true. All right, well, we got to get to how this happens, but okay. I, w- I, w- I want to get back to the couple of, because I hate to bring up bad memories, but of the two or three that didn't squirt, do, did you go back and I'm sure you did overanalyze and say like, what did I do wrong? What's wrong with the, you know, not, for lack of a better, what's wrong with the person? Did you figure out some sort of answer yes, there? Yes, yes, yes. It taught me a lot. I think the first one or two times that didn't happen, I was like, what is off? Because I thought it was just me doing the little hammer hitting the knee thing. So I did that thing. It didn't work. I go like, oh, it's the coaching that is missing. So I start to study how the PC muscle work and how do you know, other sex educators talk about it, the bearing down, and, and, and how to solo people, people who want to masturbate se- themselves to squirting, what kind of state they need to be in. So I kind of start combining the two and like, what is the right wording that I could say it in a way that is sexy instead of like, hey, just pee a little faster. <laughs> <laughs> but I also try different words. It doesn't make sense. It, the, the, their language has to make sense in order for them to interpret it so they could do their movement correctly or, or contracting the right muscle. 
So I start experimenting what to say, how to say it, and how can I get them quickly because patience is not very high when it comes to sexual experiences. <laughs> so soon as it get kind of awkward and clunky, then the arousal drops. So yeah. I have to always maintain arousal, quickly communicate something. Able to calibrate with them, so the failure. Or not, I don't even want to call them yeah. failure. Those experiences taught me way more than the success. Mm, yeah. Okay. So you know, it's very likely that most women have that capacity to do it, and if if you hit the right spot. So let's talk about that right spot. I think most people who've heard of squirting and know anything about the technique of squirting would have heard about hitting the G spot, basically providing internal vaginal stimulation to that front wall of the vagina about two knuckles in and you're kind of uh, doing the come hither motion maybe in a very in a very um, vigorous kind of way so that you're pushing on the what the g-spot is is that area where the the vaginal wall comes together with the internal portion of the clitoris the legs that kind of go around the vagina as well as the urethra that passes alongside the vagina and so when you're hitting that g-spot in kind of the right way you can get that squirt to come out so i think most people will associate squirting technique with some type of internal g-spot stimulation not true when it comes to <laughs> science, right? I also think that technique is misleading because it's not very descriptive and effective. So because if you look at the way your finger is designed, so if you just apply upward pressure, once your finger is inside and just say it's neutral and you're just curling up, your range of motion is rather limited, right? So if you learn how to flex your finger down towards the anus and then you create a bigger drop, so your range of motion increases, but then you can't do that much velocity and pressure because those muscles will die out from lactic acid. So you got to think of like a US, um, unless, US... Unless you're a rock climber. Rock climber. In which climber. case, the forearm yeah, muscles but, are a little but bit... But even then, it's not... It's the, the, it's, it's the velocity and mm. with the right range of motion. So what I have discovered is that there's a limitation to that move. So I start like, how do I line up the body correctly? So I, st I mean, it's in all my videos on, on that particular position. But if you learn to create a large range of motion and you're able to externally also rub the clitoris with your palm and your or with thing, a toy. yeah, or with the toy, if the position is correctly and then you get the range of motion and velocity, that is the most likely overriding technique that I have seen. If you're just using your finger and do this, it's not enough. And mm -hmm. it's the person might tire out and inconsistency is so annoying to women. So if you're doing something that starts to feel good, but you start burning and you're like, oh, fuck, do I keep doing it? And they're into it. And then you have to stop. Not sexy. So you have to think of how long can you sustain emotion wow. at the rate that is, is there's before too much. Right? right. But there's a zone. So you have to maintain the zone long enough. So that's how why I'm he's here. the world's greatest sex hacker <laughs> wow. because he thinks about these things. And yeah, how do your forearm muscles not get tired before your partner has squared it? Now, this may be too personal, but have you ever <laughs> suffered from carpal tunnel syndrome? Because I've imagined that's a lot of work on your I know, arms. No, no, literally. Yeah. Like, like I have done it enough that I have to make sure that I train myself and like stretch it and, and use it because I use those muscles. When I work a, a woman retreat called Back to the Body, I would 
would do five 90-minute sessions a day. Oh, jeez. And that's not that I'm massaging the G-spot the entire time, but because of the nature of the work, I be I have to learn how to manage my own body so I don't break down like an athlete. Is one arm <laughs> for, or is one of your forearms bigger than the other, or do you balance it? And I balance it okay, out. Okay, good. And I use, I, you know, like a lot of men look at sex toys that they want robots to take over their job. For me, it's, this is like labor-saving device. That's what, how it's sex actually... Toys. Yeah, sex yeah. toy. Because it's created to be a labor-saving mm. device, especially the vibrator in the Victorian time. So so when people go crazy about like, oh, I feel so uncomfortable with this thing is better, I just think of like, why would you use a hand screwdriver when you sure. have a drill gun? Yeah. When you want when you don't want to be tired. Sure. So, But the person who's using the tool has to be masterful with the tool. And you did talk about your motion, and you might have mentioned something about the woman's position. How is the woman usually, when you're, when you're doing this, are they laying flat? They could lay flat on they could lay flat on their back and then another technique that is very useful like at a club or when you're standing vertically it works as well equally so you could do it in the shower they could be kneeling okay so there's two positions that I find that the most reliable but once they're that's for the involuntary one once they learn how to do it they could kind of do it over in anything any position, any position yeah. with any stim they could do it while nothing is happening downstairs just by squeezing their muscles so wow. yeah and I think we you know the, there's a difference between these very reliable techniques and positions where somebody else can get somebody to squirt but when you ask and and this internal stimulation, however you're providing, is kind of the iconic image of what you need to do in order to get someone to squirt. And we don't have a lot of data on this. Unfortunately, the couple of studies that have asked women, you know, how, what kind of stimulation gets you to squirt, find quite a bit of variability. In some cases, a lot of women say that it's just external clitoral stimulation that does it without any involvement of the internal portion of the vagina. And some, some say that they need both. Some say only the internal vaginal. For some, it might be anal stimulation with some clitoral external. Mm. So there, there might be different types of stimulations for different bodies that uh, get them to that point. And Why do you vagina owners have to be so complicated? It's amazing. I actually refuse to think it's complicated. It's, it's people just want to look at it from a very narrow point of view. So if you start to look at a vagina owner as someone who is just neurodiversity, how their nerves lays out in their body is just different for everyone. So some people will like like food. Some people like it spicy. Some people like it sweet. We don't go like, food is so fucking complicated. No one knows what to eat. <laughs> like people eventually find what they like, but they have to think that not everybody needs to like spicy or not everybody like to like sweet. You have to find what's pleasurable for you. Then you could look at, you could approach that situation with a different framework if you look at it like everyone should enjoy squirting you know <laughs> mm. doing this way then you run into trouble yeah and i think i've seen some of that happening more and more of guys in particular getting so into this idea of squirting i mean i guess partially it comes from the the myth that all and any any and all squirting is pleasurable and an orgasm for the women so they think oh my god if she squirts that therefore she's coming yeah and it's a very visible evidence of her coming but it's kind of getting to the point of being more about, in some cases, for some people, more about 
a, a performance. It's the pornification for, of America. Yeah, yeah, but it's kind of like they're trying to get this, get women to do this for their own kind of gaze, male gaze of male pleasure, regardless of how pleasurable this is for for yeah. the women at hand. Well, yeah. you've you mentioned in past episodes where you've had guys ask you about like my cum load is so small. How come I can't? I mean, we're so I guess now trained by porn that now we're like, oh, so. Squirting, we have to get them to squirt. Get right. Our load, our load has to be gigantic. <laughs> That's yeah. the only way yeah, sex can I've, be. I've had, I've had partners who, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a big squirter. I've squirted a, a handful of times in my life, but th- there have been a couple of those people who, like, oh my god, this can happen. Okay, every time <laughs> we have sex, all I want, yeah, all I want to do, my my primary goal is to make you make you squirt. And I'm like. Well, no. I mean, if I if I squirt as part of the this pleasurable experience that we're having, then great. But it feels so it's, forced to be like, okay, now I'm gonna try to make you to squirt. You know, and a lot of my sex therapy and sexologist friends talk about you know the term function pressure when you feel you're pressured to have a function, either getting an erection or to come now or how much to come and all those things. It takes your mind away from the pleasurable part or your arousal so that doesn't create a sexy dynamic between two people so if i am super attached to you squirting i put all my ego on Mm. it and you're on the recipient and and thinking oh if i don't squirt then he will be upset or then Mm. i start getting into function pressure not sexy so i'm always like coaching my client are they at the right mindset right or the way to experience it is it turning on what's pleasurable there are they focusing on what's arousing them and then as soon as they s- switch back to the right channel then it feels good but if they are ego based or like function mm. pressure based then no matter what physically happened it doesn't mean that is actually like in your subjective experience is still off yeah it looks like that 2018 word we discussed mindfulness if they get out of that it just mm-hmm. completely screws everything yeah. up but, but both people either yeah. way yeah. yeah yeah so if you don't have popeye arms like you can it <laughs> and you did mention something about uh toys that could help with this. Actually, even with his Popeye arms, he <laughs> is a master of toys. Okay. I yes, honestly I don't think that I've ever met another man who is more skilled, or human, <laughs> male or female, or anything in between, who is more skilled with toys. Okay. And yeah, so he has his favorite well, toys for to squirting. make people to squirt. Let me, let me get oh, my oh. pen and paper. Hold on. All right, let's go. Well, my favorite insertable toy of all time is still the Android Pure One. So Enjoy pure wine. Enjoy. So N J O Y. Yeah. We can link to that okay, on our uh, episode. N J O Y. So it's curve. It's a stainless steel toy that is curved, so like a half moon is shape, and then one ball on one end is two inches, and the other one is one inches. So it's good for both. You know, if you have male body, female body, or or it doesn't matter what what genital you have. Because you could have like you could use it for prostate orgasm, but for squirting specifically, the way is shaped because one end is heavier than the other. You have this natural uh, counterbalance, so you could use the physics of this toy to use the least amount of movement to generate the most amount of pleasure. So that's hysterical. <laughs> it's like some sort of like scientist was in yeah. a lab trying to balance these things out. That's what he's doing. That's awesome. But I think the key is to understand the science. So you could let go of being mechanical. But if you don't understand the science of it, just like if someone doesn't know how to fight, right? So if they get into a fight, they're just swinging stuff. They don't know why it works or how it works. They're not trained. But you have to be trained enough, then you become an artist again. So you have and to it be... And well, yeah. automatic enough yeah. that you don't have to fixate on or spend any cognitive resource on 
how does this work? You know how it works, so you can just focus on providing pleasure or making it. And know. my favorite line all the time, no one regrets being great at sex. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> yes, so it's worth it. Right, so you use you use the enjoy for internal stimulation, and then you like to pair it. With, with a vibrator, so it could be a Hitachi vibration on the clitoris. It could be the Zumio because it's like tiny and deadly and pointy. And then there's also like the Lilo Sona is really good for people who like suction toys. But what so I so you put something, you use some sort of a vibrator on the external portion of the clitoris while uh, you got the hook. While on you the have the hook on yeah. the inside, yep, I feel like yep. Inspector Gadget's having no, sex. But, <laughs> wait, so there's actually so much more to this that why those pairing matters. So. You know, in the beginning, it's like, oh, teaching someone how to have their first orgasm is like a big deal because we have this orgasm gap that we're still dealing with that, especially for hetero women, they're not having orgasm at all. But now for me is learning how not the first orgasm is sort of the first hachu, you know, like it's just a sneeze. So there's so much more to female pleasure that they're capable of. You can have a, like a multiple orgasm to an hour long orgasm. So how all those tools and toys lays out is more like managing sensation and and exertion because if I'm too I can't if I'm just have my jackhammer move I don't care how fit you are and you're a world-class boxer or whatever I don't see that person <laughs> jackhammering for hours straight non-stop right so I start to go like what kind of stimulation can I provide and change it up consistent enough that I could give the nerve something new to play with and continue the orgasm cycle so you could literally get someone to have one orgasm and then you just switch it a little bit to something slightly different so there's something new to the body to feel good again. You ride it to the multiple orgasm and then at the later stage after typically about 10 to 15 minutes of orgasm, you enter this erotic trance state. And so Tantra people talks about it, ancient Taoist text talks about it, where your your refraction period is so low, you just feel like this unending orgasm that is overwhelmingly good. So they get a little kind of high doing it. Yeah. So all the toys is that you learn how to switch up this different sensation. So then you give something new, then you could extend the long period of those orgasmic state, which I think is like magical. Mind, wow. mind blowing. It is. <laughs> Although it's funny because you did mention earlier about the fact that you know you have to do it enough. When do you know when to change up from the from one to the other? Right? Because you said like women like a certain rhythm, or vaginas have a, have a certain rhythm, but then you, if you switch it up at the wrong time, it could screw everything. <laughs> so up. that's where the I think I guess that's where the experience come in, but. Don't switch it up before they, they come. I mean. So well, you have to. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's a main. Oh my god! And this is not just for squirting. This is for literally anything and everything. And it's such a common mistake that men in particular do when they're having sex. They're providing some stimulation, whether it's penetration or hands or toys or Oral. or tongues, yeah. whatever it is that they're using. It starts to feel good. They can feel that their partner is responding to that. Right? She's getting excited. She's kind of panting and getting to the point of an orgasm and they st start changing things usually they start going faster very often they'll start going faster like if it's penetration they'll start jackhammering faster <laughs> right. and and you're like no 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 this is so good keep this it is, there just keep it there yeah. do exactly what you were doing that is what's getting me there not something slower not something faster not something different this exact same stimulation that you were providing keep that going that's why on one of the videos that you watch on the oral video when it's tongue fucking and fingering on right? your on online video, course, I literally lay out a timeline with a graph on how to pick up that intuition <laughs> because you have to learn how to listen to that sound. And 
and and also develop this internal clit clock. So don't use your <laughs> dick clock. Your your dick clock is always wrong. Right. So I don't listen to my intuition anymore. I listen to the clit clock. And is, there, is, is there an app for that? <laughs> they they should. Yeah, because dicks and clits have a, a different, very different timeline. Different timeline. So so what I learn is that if you listen to the sensation and listen to their breath and their sound, and everybody express sexual pleasure a little differently. But the thing is, it takes another thirty seconds to a minute usually. Right for most people to get to the finish line or get to the very top state, from from, so they start to feel the first wave of pleasure. So it starts to build up, and you're like, "Oh, that feels good." Then mm-hmm. it drops a little, mm-hmm. right, and then it comes back, kind of higher but consistent, like good, 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 kind of building almost to where you're about to have an orgasm. Then it actually drops back down. It doesn't. Cont- it is not linear, so it drops back down, and then the final build. That's usually the thirty seconds to a minute when you're fully having this release orgasm. Where most guys fucked up is after the first wave or the first, the second, the mid-orgasm state. That's when they start to change shit. Mm-hmm. So I made this vi- video specifically to teach them when not to shift and just state your course for another 30 seconds to a minute. You could overestimate. That's a good time to overestimate in this one. Just keep going. Make sure she is done, not when you are done. So when you start switching your dick clock into a click clock and then you understand there's a difference, then your listening skill and or reading cues become a skill that you could learn because it's to me is not a mat like a mystery, right? That you just have to go, my partner respond like this when she's about to have orgasm and your in- intuition is a little <laughs> Yeah, tricky. no, it, it it's a it's a good way of thinking about it. Just you know, keep doing it and if if it becomes unpleasurable for her she'll she'll let you know you know she'll move away (laughs) she'll move your hand or whatever it is away she will signal hopefully that but very very often guys underestimate how long they should be providing the stimulation as opposed to over and the consistency consistency, right the consistency and not change their their higher or lower too much you know ironically there is some science the the orgasm part like the, the the natural desire to like like jackhammer faster or bang mm-hmm. hat or doing faster because you go when you are switching system from your brain right you go from parasympathetic nervous system to sympathetic so basically from relaxation to flight or flight in order for the orgasm to happen so excitement helps to switch to flip so if you threaten them with a good time at that moment <laughs> it kind of mm-hmm. helps to kick you over mm-hmm. but you don't want to overwhelm the system that where the pleasure is no longer like you're feeling more hip banging on you than your vagina right yeah so you just have to pair it enough that you keep the consistency good but increase excitement so you kick into flight or fight so uh, this is a question for both of you then so say you're getting to the point where you get the woman to uh, the vagina owner to come and you talk about changing to another rhythm what if you stayed in that rhythm would they come in that position again or would it, you'd have to switch it up for her to like re, is it like a reboot like a control alt delete? I mean, it, it depends. It depends. Some women after they've had an orgasm, their clits are going to get really, really uh, sensitive, and they can't take if let's say you got them to orgasm by providing some direct clitoral external clitoral stimulation right after they've had an orgasm, they're not going to be able to take that type of stimulation. Okay. So you might you, you might have to change that up, otherwise it's going to kind of start to feel unpleasant and maybe even painful. And uh, other times, 
depending on what the stimulation is, you might be able to keep going because the arousal level doesn't drop all the way down. You know, people will stay at a relatively high arousal yeah. level. So even just a little bit of, of the same could, could get them to have another orgasm and another orgasm. Now, if you want to keep going, that's when you really want to at some point. and change things. Yeah. But the, the goal is to drop it enough that you don't, you don't end the session because once you after the first orgasm, that's when the magic actually start to happen. In mm-hmm. my view, it's sort For of like it's, it's, yeah, it's, women, it's yeah. to to an entry point. But I I believe, and this is obviously my assumption, that people are just not training themselves to get to that state or like consciously putting effort to learn how to have how to have multiple orgasm. So I, I give this analogy quite a bit when I'm I'm coaching someone before I start doing the pleasurable part is to imagine you are surfing all the way in the, in the morning when the water is good, right? So you can't control the waves. You swim out there, and the waves will come. The pleasure will come, and then you just have to learn how to ride it. So you start surfing a little bit, and you got your first big wave, your first orgasm. The goal is not to swim back to the beach. Just stay in the water is the key. Mm-hmm. So if they stay in the water and they swim back out and kind of relax their body, have a little bit of sensation, wait for the next wave to come. And then when it comes again, then you ride it again. And then as long as you don't go back to the beach, you could kind of keep going. You don't want to wipe out. But it gets, <laughs> you don't want to wipe out and you don't get, it, it builds that pleasure. But the problem is that if you are using very high sensation, so your first orgasm, just say start with a Hitachi at level four, the nerve ending requires such a high sensation that you can't keep going. So I do believe that if you start off the first one a little bit more gentle as far as sensation is concerned, mm. then you have more room to build, to build on that timeline. Mm. So you could kind of change it up. So I could start off very light, the first orgasm. By the very end, I could use my crazy hypervolt massage gun <laughs> with the strongest <laughs> vibrator because I'm at the very end of the journey. But in the beginning, if you start off a little lighter, because you can't go backward. Mm. It's just like salting your food too hard in the beginning. <laughs> so when you eat like a good sushi, you don't start off with the salty one. You start with the delicate light taste and then you build your weight mm. up. I love all these analogies that, yeah. that Kenneth has from surfing to food to uh, what are they got? The, the massage gun. The massage. <laughs> <laughs> I hacked the, the hypervolt massage, a trigger point therapy gun. To, for cervical stim because it, it just it but at the very end in the beginning way too painful like it's too much but right, at the right, very end it's like with the cervix yeah, yeah. We, we've we've mentioned on the show before mm-hmm. a couple of times maybe that that there are cervical orgasms and that some cervix owners can experience them but for many other cervix owners the stimulation of the cervix is is very painful and very unpleasant which is why when you're having sex with someone penetration with someone who is, has a very long penis and it's hitting up against the cervix, it can be very unpleasant and and painful. But it's very possible that if you really build it up, as Mm -hmm. Kenneth is saying, and you you have a few orgasms and you get the person to be in that very high arousal level state, then if you provide some cervical stimulation at that point, it might feel pleasurable. And when we know this from BDSM practitioner, the way you could handle pain or how Painous process mm. after you're fully aroused and you're already in that right. system is completely different. So it's more of a timing issue. Mm. Not that everyone needs to try this jackhammer like cervical stim, but <laughs> right. yeah, it could and, be very and, different. And we should point out that obviously this is not going to apply to everybody. Yep. That's not to say that every vagina owner is and should be multi orgasmic and should you know, build 
or try to wave. build. Yeah, yeah. Get yeah. On many waves. <laughs> Learn yes. how to serve multiple. Surfer, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, whatever works for you. As yep. long as you are having good, pleasurable sexual experiences, keep doing what you're doing. But you know, keep in mind that there might be, depending on where you're at, there might be a lot more pleasure out there to be experienced if you are doing it right and giving yourself time and staying in the water. You know, I guess my 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 perspective or my curiosity is that. Just like you know, when people used to have more time to devote to like movement art or being an athlete, so to an untrained body, that's what you could experience because you're deconditioned. But if you're an athlete, people could do crazy ability be- with their body because they're trained. So I feel like a lot of people, in some way, undertrained because they just never trained themselves mm. sexually to have a higher degree of pleasure. So it might be an underdeveloped thing rather than a potential thing. I do hope people spend a little bit more time knowing there's a possibility to get better right. with training. Right, right. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way of looking at it. When you're doing a workout or whatever it is, uh, stretching, everybody's at a different level and we all have room to grow. And what's the next exercise that you should be doing or how vigorously you should be doing it or whether you should be doing it off the floor or off the off the wall depends on where you're at. But there's always room for improvement. And so sex is no different, especially if you have a growth mindset. Yep. All right, so I know you're not a doctor, Ken, but I I, I want to call you now the the squirt doctor. Because I think he should get an honorary yeah. PhD, PhD in squirting. Seriously. seriously. So, uh, so if you want to learn from the squirt doctor, how can how can one do that? Well, on canaplay.com, I created an online course because I used to do this play lab sort of like a TED Talk-like style where I give a lecture and then I do a demo and then I have people practice live. But I realized I cannot reach as many people as possible. So I do believe the future of sex education is actually porn because porn doesn't censor me. So I start making very explicit video like my classes and I put them together. But I seen a lot of workshop that I did like a live stream that is way too long. So people have no patience. So I start to deconstruct this so I make the right length for video. They're usually about five to seven minutes long. And it give you one to three techniques that you could try immediately because you don't want to overload your brain to try to try 15 things. So I kind of broke it down to little lessons that you could watch it with your partner or watch it by yourself and try it the next time. So you could go play multiple times. But the success rate is much higher because it gives the right dose of like success. So so a reward. So I broke it down and it's quite simple. And then they play by play. I love when I seen like my Pornhub video review. People go like, "Came here to masturbate, and I learned something." So (laughs) yeah, so you can actually find some of Kenneth's stuff on Pornhub. Mm -hmm. Educational stuff, not not just for entertainment purposes. Although some people might use it that way. Sure. Because as he was saying, being able to see how exactly this happens in real life that's not censored by all of our kind of anti-kind of sex and nudity and all that uh, rules and regulations everywhere else aside from the porn world. So the porn world is a good place for these kinds of very explicit instructional videos. So you can find some of Kenneth's stuff on Pornhub. And then if you want to learn how to get somebody to squirt, then you can buy the online course that has some of the most reliable techniques and sex hacks that Kenneth has developed over time. So if you want to use a discount code to get this product or any of the sex hacker bundle, which has like squirting, oral penetration and toys and foreplay, get your listener a 10% off. They use the word science as a discount code. All right. Yes. So keyword science in the website one more time is KennethPlay.com. So K-E-N-N-E-T-H-P-L-A-Y.com. And obviously we'll link to that in our episode uh, description. 
So you can get either an individual squirting class, which is $47 yeah. and then the 10% off, or you can get it as a bundle, sex hacker bundle, that includes not just the squirting class, but also penetration and, and oral, oral sex. And foreplay, which I think is so critical. Foreplay, and yes. And then all the toys hack that I have accumulated. And it's a little different than the video I have on Pornhub because I spend a lot of time creating infographics and, and overlays. I don't think anyone, I don't know anyone have geeked out that hard no. on, on video production on teaching sex. You know what you are? You're like the Al Gore. Have you ever watched Inconvenient <laughs> Truth? You're the yeah, Al like Gore I do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you have your own like PowerPoint presentation yeah, like, for squirting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. Awesome. So so before we ever go though, we got to talk about that mega sex research thing in Michigan that you're doing, right? How, how, <laughs> yes. How, how can people sign up for that one more time? So the survey, the online survey that everybody and anybody should take and share it with everybody they know mm. is squirtingsurvey.com. And we don't have a date for our can all women squirt and what and what are the techniques that get them to squirt. We don't have a date for that, but we will announce that on drjana.com and on kennethplay.com and on our respective social media accounts when that is ready to go. Now, can you tell me 2019? Will we see this in 2019? I would think if it's not happening this quarter, it'll be the next quarter. Okay. So anywhere between March, April, May, any any okay. different that, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good timeline for that. And... Online courses if you wanna if you're ready to learn how to make this happen. And please send me pictures of the wet spot. I love those. <laughs> I love those testimonials. That's great. Awesome. All right, Doctor Shauna, I feel like uh, I feel like I've no, I've learned so much. I I now feel like Luke Skywalker to our Obi Wan Kenobi. <laughs> Are you squirting. gonna go home and try to get your partner to squirt? Yeah, you know? I, I gotta get one of those enjoys right. That's <laughs> I, that's immediately I gotta get right. I mean, you can try no, with no, your hands. You just with your hand watch the video and then it's for both of but you. I have watch small it together. Arms, it has Doesn't nothing. Matter. It has nothing to do with the muscles. <laughs> Kenneth, thank you so much for stopping by. Thank Sorry. you for educating us. Uh, on squirting this has been a lot of fun and educational you yeah, know, I, yeah. Think, I think it's one of those shows edutainment can, and, and what do you call it edutainment edutainment sure it's edutainment yep. where it's one of those shows where you can enjoy it but also take notes along the way mm -hmm. and learn so that's cool that All was right. fun Dr. Jana that's it for episode number 56 of the Science Sex Podcast indeed uh, what are you guys doing now are you guys going to go out some drinks or have some fun now talk or? about squirting we're going to talk about squirting obviously <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> alright All right, cool <laughs> till next time we'll see you guys bye thank you to connect with Dr. Jana and Joe Go to the scienceofsexpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod and follow us on Facebook at the Science of Sex Podcast. Subscribe now to listen to the weekly podcast.